90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Yay! <laughs> Yay? <laughs> it's the last week of classes, man. I guess it's last week here, too, because they have finals next week. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's the effective last week of classes here, too. <laughs> I'm actually in my graduate class. We're having pizza and watching a movie. We can't decide between... Um, <laughs> We can't decide between, there's this one called The Wave, which is apparently very geological, or, you know, an old favorite like The Core. We'll see what, we'll see what Netflix has to provide. That's tough. I mean, you've got The Core, you've got Dante's Peak. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I mean, one. you could go to other hazards. You've got Sharknado 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> we did talk about climate, so that actually might be appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> day after tomorrow uh oh man that is a good one that's a really good one you know i love hypercanes <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> um what about you what have you been up to <laughs> well uh, we have our students in my class doing their final project presentations nice nice so as of this recording i've seen half of them mm -hmm. and have the other half to go some pretty neat stuff i think as long as they give me permission i'm i've recorded all of them so as long as they give me permission they'll all be online oh, so cool. i'll link those in probably in two weeks from now two weeks geez it's not like you've got stuff going on <laughs> oh i know it's uh, you know we're getting ready to do this uh, move across the country and next week is the american geophysical union meeting yay which this year i get to give a talk a poster be a panel member and co-chair a session. <laughs> so it is a phenomenally busy week. While I'm gone, all of our stuff will be loaded on a truck and start heading across the country. So, so it's so convenient, so convenient for you to yeah. disappear while all that has to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be a little, a little insane for me, uh -huh, but I'm going to yeah. be really glad after the end of the next two weeks. Man, I, I my, bet. <laughs> my deadline for me getting this done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bet. Um, but, you know, all this busyness or fun in my case, but we still have to talk about science, right? We do. And I thought it would be fun to talk about something that I will probably get to see a lot of on people's posters at AGU and in their talks, mm -hmm. which are electron micrographs. Yes, exactly. And it is something that we use a lot here. We just got a new um, scanning electron microscope. And I got to help put that together and use it a whole bunch. And they're super fun. They are. So <laughs> the, the scanning electron microscope is this thing that you, I think a lot of people have heard of it and know that it's something to look at really small things. Right. <laughs> but I don't really think many people know how it works. And it's actually really cool. So I thought it'd be fun to talk about. I think many people who use it don't know how it works either. <laughs> That's probably true. It really is. <laughs> um, we, we got our system. I mean, these things are not cheap, not even close to being cheap. And we got no. our system. And I don't think we really truly learned what was happening inside it until we got the in-depth training, which just due to scheduling and everything else didn't happen until like nine months after we had the machine. So, yeah. Yeah. It was great, though. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so... I mean, I think a place to start with is why do we want to pay all of this money for these machines? What can they do for us? Right. 
I mean, I can tell you what they do for me. <laughs> um, and we're talking about tiny stuff. Like, we have microscopes, you know, binocular microscopes or whatever. And what can you get? Like, 100 times magnification. And that's great, especially if you're looking at, in my case, you know, really coarse-grained rocks. So that's perfectly fine. But sometimes you want to look at really tiny things. I mean, shales are a big deal now in terms of both research dollars and just things that geologists are looking at. And shales are super, super tiny. And so in order to get down into these magnifications enough to see anything other than a (laughs) homogenous-looking black rock, you need stuff (laughs) on the orders of microns, not not millimeters. (laughs) Yeah, so I I use the SEM looking at some of these synthetic fault gouges that I use in the laboratory where the grain size, so the width of a single particle, might be somewhere in the 1 to 10 micron range. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Tiny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for for doing this, I would say with our SEM, which is a relatively run-of-the-mill SEM, mm-hmm. I can get up to about a 500,000 times magnification. So I will say that he cautioned us, that our, our trainer cautioned us on using the word magnification because... there's apparently a lot with how when you're looking at the screen the apparent magnification is not the same as when you put that same image up on a poster because the magnification actually changes due to the aspect ratios i just want to throw that out because it was kind of mind-blowing when he said all this stuff is wrong on all your posters But it's, it's true. It's still it's still <laughs> what we use, right? When you're running the yeah. SEM, you look at the little thing that says, you know, a hundred x, a thousand x, a billion x, and it's it's, re- <laughs> it's really neat. <laughs> yeah. So you generally have a scale bar in the corner of these images yeah. that says something this long, and in most of the images I take, the scale bar, which is a tiny fraction of the image, might be something like five microns. Yeah. That's. I mean. The well, well, we'll get into the resolution on this versus, you know, what you look at. But we're in the same boat. Um, when we look for, we do, my specific group looks for what magnetic minerals we have, which is great because the iron and the minerals really lights up. And what we look for is stuff that's one micron or smaller. And so it's really hard to find. <laughs> yeah, and for reference, microns, first of all, they're a metric unit. Yes. And so micrometers, <laughs> so one times 10 to the night minus six. Uh-huh. And it's kind of hard if you don't deal with these to have an idea of what we're talking about. So if you happen to pull a single hair out and look at it, don't do this if you're driving. Uh, <laughs> that is, depending on how fine or coarse your hair is, about 20 to 40 microns in width. Right, which always blows my mind to actually stop and think about. Because I don't know about you, in our fancy SEM lab, we have this massive 90-inch television that we drive around the image on. So everything looks so big. And you're like, wow, that's, you know, a tenth of of the hair. Oh, yeah. We have about a 15-inch cathode ray tube monitor from the 90s. (laughs) I didn't mean to brag. (laughs) Yeah, that hurt a little. I totally Uh, did. Hey, it's 3D, (laughs) too, just so you know. Oh, man. So... (laughs) (laughs) When we're looking at these images, though, a lot of times we're just looking for pretty much a topographic measurement. We want to see what the surface looks like. Right. 
Exactly. And that's what these are good for. And I mean, you can do these. We do these mostly. We don't even stick. Sometimes we stick actual rocks in there, but we stick thin sections, which are those tiny little slices of rock. And those are 20 microns thick. And we usually doubly polish our thin sections. So the topography on this to the naked eye is nothing. It looks like a piece of glass. But in the SEM, you know, you see a lot more stuff. And there are fancier things you can do with them that we'll get t- maybe to towards the end. Yes, yeah, of the show. But I didn't want to go too much into them. But you can do all kinds of crazy things like making element maps and yeah, that yeah. fancy cathode luminescence where where you can see oh, yes. different fluid flows and all that stuff. But yeah, those are add-ons to your basic SEM. Right, and pretty much no SEM is going to do all of them. I mean, if you had enough money, but. <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> we have a 10 million dollar sem that lives in our building it's not one that i get to play with but yeah it's pretty impressive <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> but what are these things for people that you know might know that they exist but don't really know sort of the history behind this microscopy well so they actually starts out back in the 30s which was so, surprising to me yeah there were some people using electron scanners Mm -hmm. so they would scan an electron beam which we'll get to in a second but they weren't really magnifying the image they were just producing you know a map of something at roughly a one-to-one okay scale but in 1937 manfred von ardeen hopefully the pronunciation's close (laughs) on that uh came up with the first actual magnifying SEM, and it took almost another 30 years <laughs> to fine-tune and develop it until the first commercial unit from Cambridge Scientific Instrument Company came on the market in 1965. And I love the name of this because it is the most 60s name that you can think of. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, the stereo scan. Yes, the stereo scan. I hope <laughs> it had Technicolor monitors, too. <laughs> I mean, it didn't have any numbers after it. I would have felt a little better if it was like the stereo scan <laughs> 3000. So true. <laughs> so true. But it, it was close. Oh, that is true. I had no idea that's what it's called. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, so uh, <laughs> anyway, we get this stereo scan 3000. It was bought by, <laughs> I, I, I think... DuPont maybe was the first company to have one of these. Mm, Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and really the design has been improved since then, but the basic idea is still the exact same. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's just what it sounds like, right? We use this beam of electrons, and it's this big column, and it shoots this beam of electrons, and you could put a whole bunch of different sort of detectors with how you focus this beam of electrons and how you actually look at the electrons, and you scan a sample with it. Right, so you take this beam, which gets focused, and you move it in what's called a raster pattern. Which pretty much just means that you scan a line and then you move down and then you scan a line and then you move down and then you scan a line. How much how a printer would work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's called rastering. So this beam is rastered over the image and the beam interacts with the surface in a variety of ways. (laughs) And with different detectors, we can detect those interactions 
and we're really just getting a number back. You know, it says at this position, the interaction was 12. At this position, the interaction <laughs> was 50. And we use those to make an image. So we're not talking about a color image. Right. You can false color them, but they're really just a big matrix of numbers. Which is really weird if you think about it, because when you look at these images, you're like, oh, yeah, it's a microscope. We just took a picture of it because that's what they look like, but they're not at all. No. <laughs> this is uh, the, the importance of algorithms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I, and just what you said, so it gives you, there's a lot of different ways that you can detect these electrons, whether you're actually detecting the bouncing electron from what you beam down and it hit your sample, whatever you're doing, and then you can check out where that electron went or... When that electron goes in, it interacts with whatever your sample is, and then your sample shoots out some electrons. So there's a lot of different ways to look at that sample because it's not a picture. Exactly. But I, well, let's back up a little bit here. And we keep talking about this electron beam, like it's something <laughs> that you can just you know, go out and you, you go to Walmart and you get a can of electron beam. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Or and a ray gun. to the top of the machine. <laughs> so where does the electron beam actually come from? Mm, it's so funny because where it actually comes from is this cheapest part of the whole shebang of this really expensive instrument. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the electron gun. <laughs> which awesome. there are more advanced electron guns than the one we'll talk about that are right. more expensive. But the cheap electron gun is uh, a tungsten filament, like a light bulb. Yeah. And it costs like $10. Yeah. So, <laughs> which is a tiny fraction of what the rest of the machine costs. <laughs> it, you pass an electrical current through this tungsten filament, it heats up, and through thermoionic emission, electrons are kicked out of the outer layers of these tungsten atoms. And I mean, the, the beam, the little electrons that get, that get kicked out, you know, you can vary how many kilo electron volts are coming out of it based on what you want to image right um and so did normal range 0.2 to 40 kilo electron volts we usually work in about 15 kev yeah so and so that's the the amount of energy that's going into accelerating the electrons so the electrons get flung off the tungsten and they're just kind of going around you know, <laughs> hanging, they don't really have out. any acceleration or direction yeah but we have an anode that we charge to some voltage that pulls the electrons towards it and accelerates them out this little opening, and they go shooting off down the column. Right. Yeah. So, so this whole thing, and it just it looks just like that. I mean, we'll put a picture up of, of one of our SEM setups, but that's the big column on top, and that's where all the action is happening. Yeah. And these, these energies that we're talking about, you know, 40 kilo electron volts sounds like a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's nothing. It is a tiny, I did the conversion earlier, and I want to say it was 10 to the minus 19 joules or something. It, it's tiny. <laughs> that is tiny. Because <laughs> ours says like 40,000 EV, you know, and everybody's like, oh, don't go that high. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's actually not that much energy. But all these electrons are going, flying down the column after this acceleration, and they have to go through lenses to get focused, just like you would in a normal microscope, into this really narrow beam that's half a nanometer to five nanometers in diameter. Right. And that's also something that you can change depending on what you're trying to image, which is the versatility of the SEM. 
it's true. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I love about this is we said that they go through a lens. <laughs> but glass, plastic, anything like that would stop this electron beam dead in its tracks mm-hmm. because it's really not that energetic. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are electromagnetic lenses. Oh, God. <laughs> Are you getting, you know, engineering physics too? Yeah, exactly. Nightmares. Flashbacks. Yeah. <laughs> Big flashbacks. Uh, so these are a series of coils that you change the current going through the coil, and it changes how the electrons pass through the coil. And if you remember, electrons will spiral or helix around these lines of constant magnetic field. Right hand rule. <laughs> yeah. So have you noticed on your SEM, and this is a fun thing, if you ever get a chance to drive an SEM, do it. <laughs> Change the focus. And as the image comes into and out of focus, you'll see the image uh-huh. rotate. Yep. yep. And it's rotating because as you're focusing it, you're changing the helix that these electrons are going down and back up in. It's really neat. Yes. It, it gives you. It gives you that... Um... And this is stuff that I don't think a lot of people know, you know. Um, this is the thing that gives you that sense of this isn't actually a picture. We're not actually taking a picture. Right. And most people say, why is it rotating? Something's wrong. And you're like, yeah. no, it's physics. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> Something yeah. is exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're, we're focusing them, but then we have to scan them. Yes. And these are the expensive parts. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much everything below the electron guns, the expensive part. Yeah, Uh, everything below the filament. Yeah, exactly right. (laughs) Yeah, but there are another set of coils called deflection coils. Mm -hmm. And do you remember J.J. Thompson's experiment? No. This is way back, early fundamental physics. Okay. And they had a tube. I want to say it's a Crookes tube or a variation of a Crookes tube. Okay. Where you would shoot electrons off of this filament. It would go down, and it would hit a phosphor screen. It's the basis for TVs, cathode Ah. ray tube TVs, Mm -hmm. because they have electron guns, and they steer the beam. They do everything we're talking about Mm -hmm. in your TV. Uh, (laughs) But he would hold a magnet close to it, and you could deflect where the dot on the screen was. Ah, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, this is coming back to me now. Yeah, and I remember in high school, uh, my chemistry teacher, Mr. Brown, did this demonstration. He had this tube he set it up you could see the trace of the electron beam on the phosphor and then just had a big magnet you know like a horseshoe magnet a strong one and put it up there and you could watch the beam bend that's awesome it was amazing (laughs) that's so cool (laughs) this is why we need more demonstrations in classrooms because demonstrations make an impact that's exactly right you could read that wikipedia page all day long but actually seeing it happen and sticking with you for that amount of time that's pretty cool yeah i mean it's it's been a number of years since that demonstration <laughs> we'll say that uh, i still remember like i uh, in physics too and you know sticking the battery down the coil and changing the speed of how it's going you know that kind of stuff so yes oh yeah that is the yeah. important of these what seemingly silly little demonstrations yeah yep so you're doing that except the magnets are replaced by coils Again, that we can change the current through them, and we can steer the beam anywhere we want in this little area. Right. Which we have to stress, it's a small area. Yes, you forget that too. And I, you know, I made the joke about the ninety-inch screen, but you really do forget that. I mean, the the samples that we're putting in there are an inch across. They're little circular cores 
you know, and they're an inch in diameter, but you're sampling a fraction of a fraction of that rock. Yeah. Does your SEM have this remember points of interest feature? Oh, yeah. It's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. You can say something like, you know, this grain, I want to be able to come back and look at this one. So remember where on the sample this is. Otherwise, you'll never find it again. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And I remember when we were going through the the training, he stressed, he said, it doesn't know your rock. It just remembered this coordinate. So don't rotate it. Don't do anything else or else you're going to, you know, be hosed if you try to remember that point. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Learn that one. So... Yeah. Well, so the, the electrons, we've now got them coming down the column. They've been focused. They've been deflected. And they hit the sample. <laughs> then what happens? <laughs> oh, so many things. Oh, uh, it is. It is so many things. And this when, is where, like, if you're a shopper, you can have so many different detectors and all the stuff to buy to figure out what you want to see once those electrons hit. I mean, I'm pretty sure they offer, you know, the rust preventative undercoating, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, it's crazy. And this is all assuming a normal stage that you just stick a sample on. You can have all kinds of fancy stages that do stuff, too, that affect them. But that's a whole other show. Oh, yeah. And I remember I took a surface characterization class my first year at Penn State from the material science department just because it thought it'd be interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had a fundamental misconception that was with me until graduate school mm-hmm. that an SEM, you shot electrons at something, one of these processes happened, you measured that, and you would take the same sample and put it in a different image, and you would shoot electrons at it, and some other process happened, and you would measure that. Really, all of these processes are all happening the all the time. Yes. <laughs> It's just what you choose to measure, and the interaction between them is why some people don't sleep at night. Right. Yes. Exactly. Uh, and, I mean, it was a silly misconception to have because you think about it. And you're like, well, of course, one machine's not I... emitting electrons that are different than any other. Every electron in the universe is the same. Exactly. And, I mean, you, we see it because we have a couple of different detectors going at the same time. So maybe we break down that misconception, but... Yeah, so (laughs) I'll just, I'll run through the list here. Um, The the beam interacts with what we call the interaction volume, because it doesn't just interact with one point on the surface. Right. Uh, This interaction volume, depending on the material, is 100 nanometers to 5 microns deep. It also depends on your beam settings, too. What you, your, you know, the size of your beam and the settings of the electron volts that you have. Oh, yes. So... In this interaction volume, the following things happen. Auger electron emission, secondary electron emission, backscattering of electrons, brimstrong X-ray emission, <laughs> cathodoluminescence, characteristic X-ray emission, transmission of electrons, elastic scattering, and inelastic scattering. <laughs> I love it that, that that was a misconception that you had that was like a... A lightning moment of, oh, my gosh. It's <laughs> all, all happening. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I see that you, like everyone else in my lab, cannot spell cathodoluminescence either. Well, you know, yeah, it's it's CL on everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's I like some of these, like, Ajay electrons. Yeah, so. I didn't know what that one was. Other than being a fun word, right? Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I was like, and, ooh, fancy. 
Yeah, we're not going to go over many, but it mostly we'll go over secondary electron emission. Um, but I will say that backscatter is my favorite, but that's fine. <laughs> I think we need to do another show on backscatter. Yeah, it's probably because true. it's it's complicated. But one that isn't measured, I would say, commonly in most instruments is Bremsstrahlung X-rays. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bremsstrahlung means breaking. Oh. And so this is the process of when you are accelerating an electron, remember acceleration could mean just curving its path, Mm -hmm. or it could mean decelerating, slowing it down. But as you're doing that, you're changing the energy of the electron, and it has to emit x-rays. And the frequency of the x-ray that it emits is characteristic of what's happening to it. That is really interesting. And then that x-ray interacts with everything you're trying to image, and yeah. Yeah. So I just (laughs) like that one because it's got a cool meaning behind the word it does and a cool word yes uh but (laughs) secondary electron emission is the story of today so how's that work right right Uh, i mean these other things these are all you can measure all of this stuff but you just have to have the right sensor stuck in there and i mean the chamber in these guys is pretty small you know it's like maybe a foot square yeah maybe yeah maybe and some of them are even smaller than that so you know it just depends on how many things you can shove up in there (laughs) At the correct places to be able to see these things. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. So we measure backscatter and secondary electron um, at the same time in our SEM. Ooh, fancy. It is fancy. <laughs> I, we can do both, but I think we have to do them one at a time. There's a like a plate that I have to switch out. Yes. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So. Which okay. means I have to pressurize the chamber and then revacuum Which it. And... is a super... Yeah, takes a long time. Yeah. So <laughs> secondary electrons are what we use for the, getting these topographic images, which really just look like blown up images of the sample. Right. Mm-hmm. Even though they're and, not. <laughs> yeah. And, and so the electron beam comes down, hits the sample, and the beam actually kicks out some electrons from the outer shells of some of the atoms via inelastic scattering. Right. And the reason it looks like a topographic image is that these electrons that are kicked out are pretty low energy. So unless they're within the first few nanometers of the sample, they never make it out. We never see them. Right, exactly. It's just like, I mean, it's any conservation of whatever you want physical law, right? Like you hit a pool ball so hard, the pool ball you hit it with is going to go even slower, et cetera, et cetera. So these little dudes are very anemic, as was described to us. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of those pool balls is one of those squishy bouncy balls. Yes. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's what you've got floating around in there and have to capture and figure out what you're looking at. Yeah. And... So these secondary electrons get kicked up from the interaction volume of that little place that you've got your beam focused. Mm -hmm. And then they're detected with a really cool detector. (laughs) I love it. I love it. And this is how you describe this detector. Like everyone knows what an Everhart Thornley detector is. It's true. Uh, In certain circles. Uh, Okay. Everyone doesn't know. (laughs) You're exactly right. (laughs) Um, but what it is is even cooler than its actual name. <laughs> yeah, so it is a scintillator photomultiplier ah, detector. 3,000. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and these are just, um, it looks like a, it's maybe like an inch long or something like that. And it's kind of a curved, 
metal surface. That's all it is. Well, and it's got like this cage on the outside, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I forgot so it looks cage. sort of like a really bad, um, oh, what are the things? You put flour in them and, you know, you turn. Oh, the <laughs> like a little confectioner sugar sifter thing. <laughs> yeah, one of those. It looks like a really bad one of those with huge holes. Because these little electrons are so anemic, you have to attract them towards it to even capture enough to image anything. Yeah. So we turn that grid, uh, connect it to plus 400 volts. Bigger and since than... electrons are negatively charged, they come rushing towards it. Mm-hmm. Right. Scintillator. Such a well, great word. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, once they get inside the grid... Then they start getting attracted towards the scintillation material, which is generally charged to something like plus 2,000 volts. Right. Mm-hmm. And remember, this is all very low current, just high voltage. So right, exactly. it's, not, it's not like you have to connect these to their own generator. Right. <laughs> uh, but they, the electrons then have enough energy that when they slam into the scintillation material, which just means that <laughs> when, they hit this, when they hit the scintillator, they make that material emit a little bit of light. And when we say a little bit of light, it's not like you could be watching this material and when an electron hits it, you see a little green flash. Yeah, no, nothing like that. Maybe on a subatomic level. I mean, we're talking about light in terms of small numbers of photons. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Hence the photomultiplier part of the scintillator photomultiplier. Yeah, so the photons go into this photomultiplier that is incredibly sensitive. Right. And then we count them. So we're not actually getting a real measure of anything about the surface. We're getting counts of electrons Mm -hmm. relative to whatever. Yes. And And then then we shade an image based on that. Yeah, and then a miracle happens, and you get a picture of the thing you're looking at. (laughs) Um, so all this electron talk, I mean, you're sending off these little secondary electrons that your actual sample is emitting, right? But you can't just stick anything in there because there's a lot of problems with this. Yeah. And I don't know how crazy your guy was when he was training you. (laughs) Uh, when I got trained on ours here, if you even went near the sample chamber without gloves on, you would be tackled. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, yeah. He ripped into us, too, because we're like, here, let me get this for you. And he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what? I'm just opening it. And he's like, no. <laughs> Put yeah. these gloves on. <laughs> yeah. Because, as we mentioned before, most traditional SEMs operate under vacuum. And your finger oil would outgas and bad things would happen. Right. Exactly. So if you can't pull a good vacuum, you're not going to be able to steer your beam correctly. You're not going to be able to get a good image because you can't steer your beam and then your electrons are going everywhere and it's not good. Um, So what we do is, which I assume is what everyone does really, is we have this totally separate machine that was also expensive (laughs) (laughs) that we stick our sample in and it's basically a sputter coater. And it puts this really thin, I mean, really, really thin layer of gold down. Some of them are platinum, stuff like that, um, because your sample needs to conduct these electrons. Because if the electrons just sit there on the sample, you can kind of fry your detectors, basically. Yeah, so 
we sputter coat with gold generally as well. And yeah. it's it's a few atoms thick. Right. I mean, it's super tiny. You can see it, obviously, because it's gold, but yeah, really um, tiny. But if, if your sample is non-conductive, and sometimes even if you have it sputter coated and you use too high of an acceleration voltage, yeah. uh, you start seeing areas of the sample where the color on the image gets brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. And that's the sample charging up. And as there are more electrons sitting on the surface, as electrons come down and try to interact with the material, they get repelled away and you just, you have a charged sample. Right. And I mean, the bad part about this is, because um, you're like, aren't you trying to find electrons? Well, the bad part about this is, is once you charge your sample enough, it has to discharge just because that's how you know, physics works, and you <laughs> essentially create a, you create a little thunderstorm in your chamber. <laughs> and we did this accidentally um, a couple of times. It was actually the guy that was training us. He kind of wanted to show us, but then our, we had some issues, and it created this huge little thunderstorm. And that can be really bad because you can damage all your detectors, which are really expensive. Yeah, so you get a discharge. and Yeah. And, and it it's looks no just like that. It's a. It looks like because you can see inside. We also have a camera inside our chamber, and that's so we can steer our uh, steer our little samples around. And you could see on the camera that it was. It was just these huge like lightnings that were <laughs> happening everywhere. And like he's like, this isn't good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's it's super important that this lesson, you know gets taught to whoever you have running your machine because that's not great. So you don't want charge buildup at all. Yeah, and if we start getting charge buildup, generally what I do is, you know, we're not in a perfect vacuum. Right. We're not even yeah. really in that high of a vacuum. It's just no. a pretty good vacuum. Mm -hmm. So I drive over somewhere else on the sample yeah, and look there for a while and wait for that to slowly discharge and then go back. Right, exactly. Um, because you're, <laughs> you can't stress enough, I think, until you actually sit there, how small a volume that you're actually investigating. Yeah, I mean, my samples, I generally put in about mm, a three quarter inch circle, three quarter inch in diameter circle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, with material scattered on top of it. And I can easily spend a couple hours just poking around at different areas. Uh, and, and probably not even imaging close to a tenth of the things you have scattered around on there. Oh, yeah. No. So, yeah. It's, 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 we have people that put sand grains on a single quartz grain, you know, and they sort of sprinkle them on this carbon tape and spend hours looking at one of them. Yes. Yeah. So, so there's definitely that. That's one way. Uh, but uh, so we also mentioned, you know, you don't, you could take the sample out and then it would discharge, but you have to remove it from the vacuum. The vacuum takes, I would say in our machine, about eight minutes to pull. Oh, goodness. No, ours is much faster than that. Maybe only like three. Yeah. N not to, not to brag again. <laughs> but, it, but it's quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's that. But it also means you can't run things that are you know, wet or non-conductive that you can't coat or most biological samples, really, unless they're freeze-dried. Right. So you have to have an SEM that could go into uh, low vac mode, and you have to have these low vacuum sort of um, 
ways of focusing the beam. So we actually have – our SEM can do this. And it was super cool because we never use that because we have rocks. Um, if you actually have a shale that's really full of something like hydrocarbons or something, you can't stick that into it because just like John said, they will outgas because it's a vacuum, right? And so you start pulling all this liquid out and that is not good. <laughs> not good yes. at all. <laughs> not, not on the finely machined precision stage. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, you don't want oil dripping out all over that or anything or goop or whatever. Um, but our RSEM will do low vacuum mode. And so he actually did a lot of that because you can get a really good image um, in low vacuum mode. And what he did, it was really great. <laughs> the morning that we were going to go over low vac stuff, he brought in, he'd found a dead locust, and he brought in the locust wing, and that's what we looked at. It was so awesome. Oh, nice, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, I actually tweeted this on our account because it was so neat. Um, the stuff that you don't realize, you know, and there's all these tiny hairs all over this locust wing that you don't see and all this stuff. So there are ways of getting around that, but it just you know, takes having the right, the right equipment. And essentially you introduce, um, there's like a little beaker of distil distilled water and you introduce sort of water into the vacuum and there's a lot of stuff that goes along with it, but it can be done. Yeah. And a lot of these machines, you know, they're called environmental SEMs or ESEMs. Yeah. And they keep the electron gun column and the focusing part under the relatively high vacuum, because otherwise the electrons would just collide with air molecules and never get down there. Right, yeah. And then the sample chamber, that short distance from the point where the electrons come out uh, to the sample is the only part that's environmental. Right, exactly. Because the, the, little, um, the little focusing, it's got a special cone that goes on it yes. to do that. And it minimizes the distance between... I mean, the distance between the sample and the beam generally is about, what is yours? Ours is usually about like 10 millimeters or something like that. Yeah, 10 to 15 millimeters is kind of the sweet spot for our setup. And ours is 9.8, but... <laughs> and it's called the, the pole. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So and you is... don't want to crash into the pole. That oh, no. That many times. <laughs> no, and that's what we don't even tell people that ours has ESEM capabilities, LOVAC capabilities, because the... The little thing that you put on there is eight millimeters long. Yeah. So now you only have one point eight millimeters to play with, and it's pretty easy without without the protections set up to drive that sample straight into your electron beam. You know, it's not good. Yeah. So, so yeah. and <laughs> there are so many different stages, which is where we mount these samples. You know, mm. There are ones for a high temperature, ones for low temperature. You can do all kinds of environmental control in here. Oh, yeah, you can. And I mean, people use these for, um, if you're familiar with geology at all, a lot of things that we like to do is like we like to look at trapped gases and or liquids that are in the actual crystal lattices of minerals. You can see these. And you freeze them or heat them up and you can tell the exact PT conditions, so pressure temperature conditions that these rocks formed in. And so you can do this on a regular microscope and it's pretty fancy setup, but you can also do it on an SEM. And that's a super fancy setup. It's yeah. very impressive. It's very impressive to see. So you need these Peltier cooling stages so you can freeze your little sample all the while watching it with your SEM. It's pretty neat stuff. Yeah, and I mean, the material scientists really have some cool toys here. I remember 
with working with an X-ray machine, X-ray diffractometer, that I could put gas hydrate on and keep the gas hydrate below its stability temperature. So you could just sit there and investigate it. That's so awesome. yeah, you could take an X-ray scan of it, and then you could start heating it up and watch the crystal structure change. Right. As it changed phase, it was really cool. Yeah, that's that's awesome stuff. Which is why these things are so expensive, but needed as well, right? Uh, yes. I mean, so. like I keep saying that just because now I feel like I'm on the <laughs> instead of being on the student side where it's like this is a cool toy, you know, I'm on the side of oh god, don't touch that. I have to pay for it if you break it. <laughs> Right. Uh, but so. SEMs are not just really expensive things. Ben Krasnow over on Applied Science actually built a homemade SEM. That's awesome. Uh, it was in a glass bell jar. So he would pull a vacuum. He built his little column, had an electron gun, had a detector, and he actually took images with it. That's and so then great. somebody donated a really old analog SEM that probably was like the the stereo scan 3000 HD <laughs> or something. Nice. It was uh, and and he converted it to be a more modern machine. That's awesome. But these are things that once you understand the fundamental physics you can build with just a little bit of ingenuity. It's just like we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about, you know, investigating this stuff further. Because if you use one, and I feel like most students, you know, they go in and they use it for their 10 hours or 50 hours or whatever. And it's just this enigmatic box that you stick this thing in and out comes these really high magnified pictures. But it with just a little bit of probing, you can figure out how it works. And yeah, build one at home. How cool is that? <laughs> Yeah, so I'm actually curious, since we said that, you know, magnets deflect the beam, mm -hmm. when you're looking at your magnetic minerals, do you have problems with the beam being deflected enough that you get, like, some weird skewing around them? Um, not too bad. Um, if you do, we probably don't see it because they're so bright anyway. Okay. So they're actually kind of hard to focus just because they're so conductive. Yeah. So if it is, it's small enough that we don't see it. Well, and, and you know, a lot of the machines too, if you have a sample that the entire thing is acting a little weird, you can do astigmatism corrections. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We have that too. And um, yeah. that's, that's what they say to do. So that's, we just sit there with the stigmators and try to make the beam not move. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and that and that is true. I guess when we're trying to make sure the stigmation is correct, we do find, we try to find one of our magnetic minerals to do it on. So okay, yeah. I guess we do see a little bit, yeah. Yeah, there, there's this whole process. I don't use the SEM enough to just have it memorized, so I have this like ten page or so yeah. typed manual that I wrote uh -huh. myself. Uh huh. That's you go in and you do this and you do this and you do this and you don't do this. Don't click that. Yes. Don't no, don't click that. And then <laughs> No, seriously. Here's a picture of that. Don't touch it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then some other pictures, yes. Yeah, so no, okay, now you're gonna click this because it, it's a complicated piece of machinery. I mean, you said you had to get training on it for multiple days. And it's something oh, yeah. I probably go use three times a year. See, and that's and that's exactly how most of the students are, you know, and so we wrote our own little five page thing that said 
for the love of God, do not touch this. <laughs> and right. we actually went even further, which maybe you'll be proud of me, um, <laughs> and figured out we have a couple of different levels of usability. And so we have the the very lowest level of you can do this and this, but it locks you out of all these other things. <laughs> oh, wow. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. So based on the student and how much training they've had, you know, they can move up levels or not. <laughs> Most people is not. So. Do they get the little, you know, plus one? Doo, 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 doo. Yeah, no kidding. Level we'll uh, up. Yeah. Uh, let's just say we had a lot of people drive their samples straight into the detectors, so that's why. Ooh. Yeah, that's why we had to institute some tough love. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I don't know. It's it's a fun machine, for sure. Yes. Uh, I don't remember what our rate is, but most machines are charged by the hour. Yes. Mm-hmm. that you use do you know what's an average rate for you um i mean we offer for like our own students like ou students um it's 20 dollars an hour which is really cheap <laughs> because a part of our machine was funded by um we had funding for it so so we okay. don't charge an outrageous amount but i think if you go to use someone else's machine you know there's not one it's usually like 40 to 50 i think on uh, the see, high I, end. I, I think we might be pushing $100 an hour here. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, you see these service contracts so are really expensive to have somebody basically on call to fix your stuff if it breaks, which if you don't have a dedicated technician, which we do not, um, it's kind of invaluable. So I think that's why a lot of the rates are so high. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know about yours, but ours, one of the detectors has a... I want to say it's a mica window or it's got a very thin window that it has to be kept at liquid nitrogen temperature. Ooh, fancy. So one of the first things we have to do is make sure there's liquid nitrogen. And if there's not, you have to call the person that their job is the care and feeding of the (laughs) SEMs in this building. Exactly. Yeah. And they have to come and take care of it. Yeah. So there's, there's definitely... A lot of kind of nuance to running oh, the machine. Oh, yeah. And, and I wasn't kidding. Two doors down, we have a $10 million SEM. Yeah. And it is fancy enough that what makes it so awesome is that you can put a little cube of rock in, and it will take your pictures. It scans all this stuff. I mean, they're not pictures. We know that. But it'll scan everything, and then it uses an ion mill within the SEM to mill off that top layer that you were just looking at. And so now you can investigate the next thing. Yeah, so this is cool. This is where you you shoot (laughs) these kind of heavy ions at the sample. You accelerate them. And they just chip little bits of the sample away. And yeah, you make a cut. Exactly. And so the point of doing this with rocks is so now you can get a 3D volume. And not only can you look at porosity, so holes in the rocks and what's in them, which is what we do with RSEM. But now you can see how those holes are interconnected and you can start to map permeabilities, which is very important if you're trying to get water or oil or gas out of a rock. Yeah. And if you take multiple images at multiple different tilts of the stage, you can start reconstructing 3D images. Right. Yeah, exactly. You get a 3D volume out of these things. I mean, it takes forever, but that's what $10 million in an SEM will buy you. And it's it's pretty impressive until you think of the scale <laughs> yeah. of what you're looking at, right? So you're, you've got a 10 micron by 10 micron volume. Well, that's great. But if you compare it to the size of a drill bit, 
Yeah. You know? <laughs> it, then it gets a little depressing. <laughs> well, and, you know, we, uh, the machine that I use most commonly is not network connected in any way. It's just sitting right. in a room mm-hmm. and you have to go to it. Some of our very fancy machines, kind of like that, you can actually call if they have your samples. So you can take a container of samples over. And you can call and say, please put in sample 297A. And they call you 10 or 15 minutes later and say, okay, you're good to go. And you remotely log into the computer and drive the machine from wherever you are in the world. Kidding. Oh, my gosh. No, we don't, we're not that fancy. <laughs> uh, it's, awesome. it's very cool. That's only for the really fancy ones. And it's pretty expensive to do because you have to pay a technician to be there and babysit. Right. Yeah, exactly. And there's like three techs that run that machine, you know, and... RSEM is like me and a couple grad students. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know. (laughs) And that's not the only machine I have to, you know, babysit, as we all know. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the coolest thing that you've looked at then? Oh, let's see. Um, I've looked at baking flour. Mm -hmm. I've looked at glass beads that have been inside a nuclear reactor and got radiated. That was pretty cool. Um, what was the difference between non-radiated glass beads? These had some like surface splotching really? type looks on them. That it, I think they were damaged to the structure of the glass. Okay. Awesome. I, yeah, we didn't quite figure out what we were seeing, and we sent a photo of it to the manufacturer of the glass beads. And their response was, look, we didn't design these to be radiated inside the core <laughs> of a reactor. So we don't know. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I did look during my training at some broken metal, like metal that had fatigued. Mm-hmm. So you take uh, a bracket and load it until it breaks. And from the look of the break, you can tell some things just, you know, with eye, your eye. Right. Like probably where the break started and if it happened all at once or if it proceeded in stages. Mm-hmm. But looking up really close, you could see all kinds of details you couldn't see down to the atomic level of course with an SEM. that's that's a tem which is another show yeah (laughs) but you could see incredible details about how this worked or where different uh different things if it was a bimaterial system which i did some looking at had made contact and how those contacts had grown and pulled apart and it was really neat but what about you really cool um i mean the locust wing was pretty neat um (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One of my favorites is looking at pyrite framboids. And so if that word sounds familiar, uh, pyrite will form these little raspberry looking things. Framboa. So they Ah. make these little framboids. They're really neat. And so they're just these like really bright little cubic balls of pyrite. Those are always fun. We see those quite a bit. Um, But we do a lot of calibrations with like coins because we want to do a lot of what actually is this. We have a separate detector that'll tell you what stuff is. And so it's kind of freaky to put this, you know, super shiny old penny in there and then see all the stuff on the surface. That's cool. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The neatest thing that we did was when we did our training, (laughs) the trainer took an SEM selfie. (laughs) And so what he did, yeah. (laughs) So what he did was he had this little rounded plastic peg And he had it on there. And so you can charge this thing. All right. This is not something that you would look at. You'd have to code it and all that jazz. Right. And so you just sat there and charged this peg. Just put the electron beam on it and let it go. Right. And 
basically what wound up happening was it bent the beam so much that it wound up imaging itself. (laughs) So it like bent it all the way back around and you came out with a picture of the chamber. And so it was an SEM selfie. That was super cool. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, because it was so charged and all the stuff trying to come at it couldn't make it on it. And it just bent it around and voila, SEM selfie. Neatest thing I've seen. Well, you know, one of the things that Ben Krasnow did with his SEM Mm -hmm. is taking multiple images and putting them together to make an animation of a needle inside a record groove. That is awesome. That's awesome. We looked at a piece of broken record. It was super cool. Yeah, so there you go. I mean, that'd be something cool to do is, you know, if you have a rotational stage, rotate a few degrees, take an image, rotate a few degrees, take an image, think of it like stop motion, Mm -hmm. and then make your own little... Well, so we can't, we don't do movies, but we actually have a setting on our software because we have a 3D television um, where we take 3D pictures. And so you can actually, not only can you see that there's a hole in your rock or a vug or a pore or something like that, but we can project it on our television, we put on our glasses and you see the 3D topography of the actual pore. It's awesome. (laughs) Oh, cool. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Uh, It's probably cooler than the SEM selfie, but. (laughs) Yeah, I have to, uh. I have to check this out because I will actually get to visit your lab in a, oh, a few oh, weeks. Oh, that's right. That is true. I'll have to remember yeah. how I did it. I wrote it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look at those notes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I think that probably has bored enough people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're obviously really excited about it. SEMs are super cool. If you ever get to go play with one or just watch someone play with one, super neat. Yeah, and I think we need to come back and talk about backscattered electrons. Yeah, we do show. because yeah, there's so many different things that you can do and like I said, they're really expensive, but that's why they're super versatile instruments. So, we'll get there. Yes. So, <laughs> but we can continue to bore people with everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> so this paper seems kind of boring. <laughs> uh, yeah, when you first sent me the paper. I, I know. <laughs> uh, ooh, it's Humulone Suppresses Replication of Respiratory Sensitial Virus. Sensitial, I looked it up. <laughs> Sensitial Virus. And Release of IL-8 and Rantes in normal human nasal epithelial cells. Ooh, that's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, I'm, this is behind a paywall, but there's a cool uh, Daily Mail article about it, so that's what you should read. <laughs> Which is all that that ridiculous title is saying is that if you drink hoppy beer, you won't catch as many viruses yeah so i guess the one sentence summary of the paper is uh beer makes you healthy yeah uh-huh that was that was the one sentence summary but i with, I, I, I think did, we can stop there yeah uh, you know there's, there's not much else to say because we are completely not in this field um but what's interesting about it is respiratory syncytial virus is RSV, which if you have a kid, your kid probably had RSV and you lived in fear of the time that it was going to happen because every kid gets RSV and it's pretty bad because there's nothing you can do about it. 
which is the sad part. Um, like my kid had to go, we wound up at the emergency room. He had to do breathing treatments and it's like every baby gets it eventually. And you're always freaked out about it and it's not cool. But this was a really interesting paper about what we can do about it. Cause there's just nothing you can do about it. You just have to watch your kids suffer for a week and it's the worst thing ever. Yeah, because what this virus does is take the entire respiratory tract and inflame it, make right. it big, make it sensitive, make it hard to breathe. Right, exactly. And it produces these awful coughs, and it's it's just terrible to look at. And so this humulone, I had to look that one up too just to make sure I was saying it right. Um, <laughs> this humulone is a thing that comes from hops. Right, so specifically the the acids that make cops bitter. Right, exactly. And so they take this out, and there's actually an SEM component to this paper, which was basically the only part that I understood. (laughs) (laughs) I waited to see if you had anything to say about the methods section, because, man, it is all (laughs) super, super above anything that we do because it's all kinds of you know getting this virus to grow and where it actually attaches on the rna strands and i mean this paper has a solid line or line and a half that is you know g g g g c a a a t g c a it it is the (laughs) genetic sequence yep (laughs) so yeah yeah it's it's pretty far above our head in terms of the genetics. Uh, right, yeah. Um, I will say I got a five in AP biology, but that was 20 years ago. So. <laughs> Let's see. So you got um, cytosine, guanine. Adenine. Adenine and Th- uh, thymine. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Good job. Um, there were some other words I remembered um, in here that I was really telomerase, telomerase, telomerase. And transcriptase, so the things that, like, viruses use to recreate themselves and stuff like that. But the cool part about the SEM images is what they do, besides a whole bunch of stuff we don't understand, (laughs) is they have this RSV stuff, right? And viruses need to grow these little filaments so they can go in and start reproducing themselves. And they basically just had RSV, and they stuck this humulone, so this hop-derived bitter acid, on the RSV, and it inhibited the growth of it. Yeah. And so if you look at the images on this paper, if you can get to it, uh, at the bottom of the image, not only does it have a scale bar, in this case it's 6 microns, and it says it's about 4,000 times magnification, Mm -hmm. but it also has WD, a number of millimeters, and that's the working distance. That is the distance from the end of the pole piece that we were talking about to the sample. And in this case, it looks like their machine, it's about 15, 15 15.4 millimeters. So much bigger than ours. Um, but, you know, this is an environmental SEM, um, obviously, because you would just suck these little things into non-existence. So. <laughs> it, it did say they freeze-dried beforehand, though. Oh, okay. There we go. There was something in the methods section I missed. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Um, but you can see in the images how, you know, the control image versus the stuff plus the humulone, how it does inhibit the replication of the RSV Yeah, the RSV viruses in that name. But it didn't just do that, which is what's kind of cool about it, because there's this thing that we can't stop, and now they've found something that might stop it, but it also affected how the RSV replicates. So it says this, you know, not only at the transcriptional level, so it prevents it from replicating, but also it starts to break it down 
the stuff that even makes it to replication, the post-transcriptional level, it starts to break that down too. And it says the detailed mechanisms remain unknown <laughs> yes. in the present study, which means they're obviously doing a follow-up paper. <laughs> yeah. Uh. So, um, but that's kind of cool because we have this awful virus that is just heart-wrenching to watch it go in, you know, and infect your poor kid. But now we've got this stuff that might not just stop it, but kind of start to reverse the effects pretty quickly. So that's kind of neat. Yeah. Well, and did you see in figure two in the top, the gels? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The DNA electrophoresis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we so, did that in class. That was one of the, the things that I remembered. So I get super excited whenever I see any of these because we did this demonstration too. It's one of those things where you put high voltage across this gel and something like it's a relatively uniform porosity, so different size fragments move at different rates, mm -hmm. and it separates out. It's what if you watch CSI and they're doing anything <laughs> with DNA and they put these things up that look like abstract art. That's a gel. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> so DNA electrophoresis, yeah. Yeah, and I will say one thing that I really appreciated about this paper: the figures. You know, a lot of them are images from the SEM, so that is what comes out of the SEM. You can't really change. Yeah. that but all of their graphs are so clear yes they have big fonts they have black white and one shade of gray you're not trying uh -huh. to distinguish between four shades of gray mm -hmm. yep. they have big bars they have clearly marked arrow bars they're annotated well it, you can look at these graphs and easily get what they're trying to tell you <laughs> which thank god or else we wouldn't have been able to do this paper yeah, but looking at some the of words, these, like, the oh, some of, the, <laughs> some of the papers we've read, the graphics could use some work. This one has mm -hmm. really great graphics. Yep. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree. Yeah, those, those histograms are really good. Yeah. So um, so that was neat. It's a really small takeaway just because we don't understand all the intricacies of it, but it was also kind of a neat thing, like I said, just because it's something that we're all familiar with, but not on this kind of level, you know? So, yeah, there you go. So, uh, hops to the rescue yet again. <laughs> I, uh, I will point out, I don't know if you caught this, John. So, um, this is from a bunch of Japanese researchers. There's like 500 people on this paper and, you know, Sapporo, Japanese beer, right? Mm -hmm. This was actually the name of the hospital where they did this was the Sapporo hospital. <laughs> oh. And I just thought it was ironic. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't catch that. <laughs> <laughs> it was really the best part. I was like, oh, my gosh, Sapporo. Why does that sound familiar? Oh, that's beer. Oh, it's a paper about beer. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously unrelated, but also hysterical. <laughs> oh, well, actually, looking in the credits, there's uh, three people that say Sapporo Breweries Limited. Just kidding. That's obviously where they got the... It is Sapporo Hospital, too. I guess they had to get the hops from somewhere. I, I guess so. So there to you get, go. There's a to connection. To get their Humulone out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. That's so funny. <laughs> so, yeah. But don't go giving your baby Sapporo to make them not get RSV. That probably is outweighed by the... <laughs> the alcohol is probably worse than the RSV. Uh, yeah, most likely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, if you have an idea for a fun paper or would like to share any of your thoughts with us, we'd love to hear from you. We've got a couple of excellent recommendations for shows coming up, and we have a very special show for you next week. 
Yay. But if you'd like to send us anything in the meantime, Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, you can email us, either type out your email or we love those audio comments, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo, at geo underscore Lehman, and at Shannon Doolin. And we always hang out in the swung chat room on Slack. That's right. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Burr, burr, burr. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our own